This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. I do see a lot of people after the fact, and and sometimes it's many years who they'll say, I had surgery for this, and then I still had the problem, or the problem came back, or now I have this problem, and then I had another surgery. And so there's a lot of people that will chase the symptoms with surgery or sometimes pharmaceuticals and aren't getting to a root cause. Our pelvic floor plays an important role in our bodies, but we may not realize how critical an optimized pelvic floor is until we're dealing with pain, incontinence, or even prolapse. And sometimes we're in a position where we may need to be considering surgery. And so today I interview Kim Vopney, the author of Your Pelvic Floor, and she's also known as The Vagina Coach. And so yes, as you guessed it, she does coach women around healthy pelvic floors. And so today she is educating us around all the different considerations for surgery. So this could be what you do before surgery, after surgery, if you're struggling to make a decision about surgery, or if you're in early stages and worried you might be in the position of having to have surgery at some point, but are trying to avoid it. We cover all of it. So let's take a listen to what Kim has to say. So today we're here to talk about pelvic floor surgery. And and quite honestly, I've interviewed so many pelvic floor health experts. And, you know, this topic I really hadn't thought of until I got to know you. So I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. So why don't we start by sharing your background? Well, I, I started out really, I could trace it all the way back to sixth grade and I watched a, a you know, sex ed class and they talked about childbirth and I sort of had this mental note saying, nope, not for me, I'm not going to do that. But I, I had this fascination about it as well and a little bit of fear and I, I remember asking my mom about her birth stories and anyway, long story short, my mom had issues. She'd had episiotomy uh, during her births. She had surgery for incontinence. She had chronic back pain. So she struggled, and when I when I think about all that I know now, I wish that I knew what I knew then, and I think that I could have helped my mom in a lot of different ways. But so that was kind of the early seed, and then when it came time to you know I, I decided I did want to start a family. I was really determined to do whatever I could to avoid tearing and postpartum incontinence, and that's really all I knew at the time was tearing or episiotomies and incontinence because that's what my mom had experienced, and so. I was doing, you know, I was researching, I had learned about midwives, my sister-in-law gave birth the year before and used midwives, I was asking them about what I could do to prevent tearing and they told me about a biofeedback device called the Epino. And I purchased one and I used it and I had a fantastic experience. I also credit my midwives, I, I credit some of the research that I did on for my own body, but I do feel like it played a role. So I thought, well, why doesn't everybody in the world know about this amazing product? 
and I contacted the company there out of Germany and I said, could I please be a distributor in Canada? And that's kind of how it started and it was supposed to be a little side business, but that introduced me to the world of pelvic health physiotherapists, which I had never heard of before. So they started to refer people to me and then I started to learn more about what they did. And then again, I was saying, how is it that not everybody knows about pelvic floor physiotherapy? And that's, that's where it started. So back in 2009, I started this business more on a full-time basis. So my, originally, this, this, the EpiNo product had been kind of a side thing. I started a, a more full-time business, so to speak, in 2009. And I ended up starting a second business with two other women looking at postpartum recovery. So I was kind of focused on this, we can talk about pelvic health and pregnancy phase, and then I recognize, hey, we're missing another really opportune time with postpartum mm-hmm. recovery. So I formed a second business t- with two other women. One was a pelvic floor physio, and we, uh, our company was called Belly Zinc, and we manufactured a postpartum recovery wrap and coupled it with a restorative exercise program. So I was kind of juggling those two for a while, and you know, now I'm a month away from my official menopause and recognized really this is a conversation that needs to happen through all life stages. And throughout this business of me promoting pelvic health and preaching to whoever would listen to, I was also experiencing my own challenges. So very early on, before I had started my businesses, I had experienced stress urinary incontinence. Short-lived, once I started to do what I do and I learned what what I needed to do, that was very fixable very quickly. Uh, Then I experienced, many years later... A uterine prolapse and uh, a rectocele where the rectum bulges into the vagina. And so I felt good because I knew the information. I knew, I, I, you know, not like many of the people that I speak with who have zero information. I, I feel very informed, very supported. So I, I didn't panic like a lot of people do, but it still was quite devastating to have that diagnosis. And Anyway, navigated that for many, many years, was able to reverse the uterine prolapse and not the rectocele. So after nine years, I did choose to have surgery, which, you know, that was a, that was a, I felt like a bit of a hypocrite because I had spent all these years, you know, you don't need surgery. You don't need this. We can do all these things. And then saying, okay, well, does your stuff work then? Why are you getting surgery? And, you know, that was sort of the feeling that I had, but I, I recognized in that process that surgery is sometimes the best option. Sometimes it's the one that people want to choose and we need to take the shame out. And also we need way more. So already pelvic health is a topic that there's not a lot of information on and pelvic surgery, I would say is even less talked about. Um, So that's kind of a new part of my mission. People seem to enter into the women's health space with a specific issue. And I think all of us are coming to that conclusion now of, oh wow, it's the whole spectrum. Um, like even I just recently did an interview with Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor, who's also in your area. And we spoke about bone health and she's like, it begins when you're an adolescent. And if you're put on, you know, a certain type of birth control, it can impact your bone health long-term. So like all of this stuff starts really early in life and changes as we age. And so, um, I'm so glad that you're broadening out your great education, so before we go right into, let's just talk about surgery and all the things we need to know. Let's, let's just do a quick um, overview of basic pelvic floor foundations. And, you know, for, for those who want even more information, I've done a lot of episodes on pelvic floors. So you can check out the Spotify um, podcast playlist. But just for people who haven't listened, let's just do quick foundations of what's normal and why the pelvic floor being optimized is so important to our health. 
The, the pelvic floor is a group of muscles that are severely underappreciated. Um, they and and part of it is because we don't see them. They're they're inside our body. We we can't go into the mirror and like we do a bicep curl and see our muscles working. So it's it's kind of a, an elusive or mysterious part of the body in a sense. It's also part of the body that's often associated with a lot of shame and embarrassment, unfortunately. And so we don't know about this group of muscles until usually until there's something that's not working correctly. So in an ideal world, the pelvic floor does all of its jobs, one being continence, so controlling our pee-poo heart, organ support, bladder, uterus, and rectum are the, the main three, sexual response, the kind of control and stability within our pelvis from a core perspective. So the pelvic floor is the foundation of the core. And it also works in synergy with our diaphragm. So every time we're breathing, the pelvic floor is responding with the diaphragm in a sort of contract and relaxed way that acts similar to like a bit of a sump pump to help kind of keep things moving through our body. So these are really important jobs that we've never been told about. And we, when things are working well, we, we, we just, they're just happening. We just kind of have this natural uh, assumption that my body's working, I poop and I pee and everything's fine. But many things in life can interfere with the function of that group of muscles. So there's three different layers of, of muscle and we can experience falls that could influence the attachment points of that group of muscles. We're, we're women, we become pregnant and give birth. That can influence the pelvic floor. We menstruate, we go through perimenopause and menopause. So we have hormonal fluctuations. Uh, some of us may have surgery for uh, even things like appendix surgery sometimes can influence the pelvis or, you know, things that don't think that they're associated with the pelvis can influence it from a scar tissue perspective or interfering with core function. So the, this, the foundation of the core, these really important jobs, everything works in, a, in an automatic way, ideally. However, there's lots of things that can influence that and interfere with its optimal function and then contribute to things like incontinence. So we have stress urinary incontinence, which is where little bits of urine can leak out with laugh, cough, sneezes. So that's where media tells us that it's just part of being a woman. So we've all seen those ads for, for the pad companies. That's stress urinary incontinence that it's ideally targeting. We also have urge incontinence, which is where we have a sudden overwhelming urge of uh, needing to get to the bathroom urgently. I need to get there right now. And sometimes we can't make it and there's a little bit of urine that leak out or we have a full release of the bladder. We can have a combination of those two as well. There can also be anal incontinence where gas or stool would leak out. And so that's from an, an, the main parts of an incontinence perspective, which the pelvic floor is responsible for. Incontinence is very treatable. Then we also have the organ support side of things. So this is now where if the muscles aren't doing their job or if we've had any injury on the inside that has contributed to some positions within the, the vagina basically that can no longer support well the organs can start to shift into or bulge into the vagina or even descend into the vagina in the case of the uterus and that's called pelvic organ prolapse and there's also pain conditions that can be related back to the pelvic floor so pain with sex um, even pain with wearing clothes sometimes. So vaginismus, dyspareunia, vestibulodynia are some of the more common names of pain syndromes associated with the pelvis. Also pelvic girdle pain, so pain in the pubic joint, pain in the tailbone, pain in and around the hips, 
more common in pregnancies, and sometimes it's something that can linger afterwards as well. And one final point I'll make is low back pain. Low back pain, there's one Canadian study that showed 95% of the women in that study who presented with low back pain had some form of pelvic floor dysfunction as well. And we all know how common low back pain is and how many treatments and therapies we often pursue, but pelvic the pelvic floor is often left out and could be one of the most important pieces to to address. You know, if if you're looking at lower back pain, you may not consider that it's, you know, the pelvic floor that could be causing it, which exactly. also creates challenges. Essentially, the first line of defense for most people is to go see their family doctor. And the family doctor's role is they're, they're overwhelmed. I do not envy family physicians who have to screen for, an, in a very limited time, seven to ten minutes, they have to kind of rule out more sinister things and decide how they can how they can manage this. And many of them don't receive information with regards to pelvic health physiotherapy, pelvic floor exercise, even hormones and diet and nutrition. They, they, that's not in their wheelhouse. And so the, the limited information that can then be provided in that short window, that small window, isn't enough for that person to then be fully informed as to all of their options and even what is contributing to their problems. And if they do get referred to a specialist, the wait times here are significant. So during that time, they're still maybe Google searching and getting scared and being confused. And then they finally see the specialist and their options are often pharmaceuticals and surgery, which again, could be a great option. However, I think we miss a huge chunk of information from a conservative approach, from physiotherapy, from exercise um, that could save people going down that route. Or if they go down that route, they would be better. They would go into the surgery and recover better, more optimally, in my opinion. So what we're here to do with the surgery is not to say, if you have surgery, what are the things to know? This is really about how do we consider where surgery might fit in in your journey. So are there things in advance that we should know on where in the spectrum are you finding that surgery tends to best fit in and what would be that optimal path? And again, it could you know, depend on like the grade of the prolapse and things like that. But how would you see like a, the ideal place on where that might fit in and things that people should be doing before that happens? I get asked this question a lot and it, there isn't an ideal time or age or stage per se. What I hear a lot is people will, you know, I get messages or emails from people saying, I'm X number of years old. I've just been diagnosed with this. Usually it's the prolapse ones that are where they're just, they, they are devastated and they're considering surgery right away. So you know, I have a stage two this or a stage three this, and I've seen my urogynecologist and, um, and I'm considering surgery. And I know that you've had surgery. And so a lot of people come to me because of that. But even though a surgeon, a urogynecologist has presented that as an option, it doesn't need to be pursued right away. It is an option. And for some, it may be the perfect time and it may be the choice that they want to make at that time. And that's fine. It's about how much the symptoms are interfering with the quality of your life is one big determining factor. However, when somebody is initially diagnosed, they may have had a few symptoms and then they receive a diagnosis and sometimes the symptoms all of a sudden become worse 
not because they're necessarily worse, but because the interpretation of that information and the all the things to consider about what that means has brought all that attention to their pelvis and their mental health now starts to bring people into quite a dark place and surgery seems glorious and it'll take this all away and I want to go there. And again, for some, I would fully support people if that's the choice that they make. I would want them to consider other information that if they choose that right now, here are some other things to do in the meantime while you wait for your surgery that could potentially improve the outcome. Um, and here's what I would want you to consider from a, a recovery perspective. But so I, I don't think that there is an ideal time. Me, myself, I remember thinking and asking questions around, well, I can live with this. Okay, I'm, I'm living with this. It's not that bad. But what's going to happen when I get to menopause? What's going to happen as I move through menopause and I'm losing the benefits of estrogen? Is it going to be worse? And then it, what if I chose surgery then? What if, what if it's better to do it now while I have more tissue resiliency? So that was something that I contemplated. And in the end, it was, part, it, it was something that I factored into my decision. I would rather do it y younger with more estrogen, um, but also potentially have more resiliency in my tissues and recover better and, and all that kind of stuff. And for many years, I sort of went, well, it's not that bad. Well, yes, it's really bad today. Well, it's not that bad. And I sort of went back and forth and I, I seemed to be able to manage it okay. And then once, you know, part of it was as I was starting to approach menopause, the symptoms were becoming less manageable they were happening more often. My quality of life and sort of my emotional mental state was deteriorating. Deteriorating, And so for me, that's what told me it was the right time was the symptoms were now dictating all of the other aspects of my life and taking away joy. And I'm now prepared. I know there are risks for surgery, but I am very informed. I've done all the things I possibly can to put me in the best state possible for surgery. Now's the time. That makes sense. And this kind of ties back to what we were saying earlier around how our bodies change over time. And I love that you took into consideration, okay, I know that as I approach menopause, things could be cha more challenging from a recovery perspective. So I have to look at the big picture. And I think that's such an important consideration is the whole picture. I remember asking my, my surgeon about it and, you know, comparing patients of yours, and actually one of his patients was my mother-in-law who had a cystocele, so a bladder prolapse surgery when she was uh, 80 or 81, I forget the, um, so anyways, significantly beyond menopause. And I remember asking, you know, for your patients in the 60, 70, 80, kind of beyond menopause, what is the success rate? What is the longevity? How does it change? And in his, in his opinion and in his practice, you know, he does prescribe vaginal estrogen prior to surgery to help build a little bit more resiliency, but he said it doesn't shift that much. I still felt, knowing what I know with regards to fascia and estrogen and what have you, I still felt like I wanted to do it in, in a, um, when I was younger rather than waiting because there's more years of compensation. There's more years of, um, you know, drag and pull on the fascial system there's potentially more degradation to the muscles because you're not moving as optimally as you could so for me it made sense to choose it earlier and also 
considering what is the current state of what it, whatever it is that you're dealing with, whether it's incontinence or prolapse, how is that interfering with or not the capacity of your muscles to work well? So some people can have prolapse and have really strong, really functional, really great pelvic floor muscles. But sometimes, and, and this was a, a true for myself, the drag of like the heaviness, the bulge was influencing my ability to, to perform the lift part of pelvic floor. So when you have a pelvic floor activation, there's sort of a, a, a contraction, but there's also a, an upwards motion, a, a bit of a, a lift. And if you have a lot of dragging, a lot of heaviness there, sometimes that lift can be more challenging and not as effective. So in my mind, I felt like being able to address that anatomical challenge and eliminating that bulge would ultimately allow my muscles to work better, which could allow me better progress from an exercise perspective for the long term. And that was when I went back to my physio after. So it was seven weeks post-op that I went back to see my pelvic floor physio and not like surgery does not make your muscles stronger. I just want to say that, but it can help fix anatomy to some degree that can allow the muscles to work better. So my strength was basically the same as it was before. However, my lift was a little better and continues to, to improve. So those were all factors that I was looking at as well. As you were explaining the types of pelvic floor issues, I figured we should just quickly address, and then I wanted to talk about the preparation that you did for your surgery uh, to make it more ideal, is does surgery, is surgery the way to address all three types? So continence, prolapse, and pain. And I know pain can be caught, like I interviewed uh, Dr. Jill Kraft and we did a whole thing on pain with sex and we talked about the four different uh, causes of it. So just because I don't want to make any assumptions and I'm sure it's not black and white, like you only have this or only have that. So I'm sure it's complex, but um, just for someone who may be looking at surgery, like what are the different for the three different ones, is it only the prolapse that requires surgery? No. So we can, there is surgery for incontinence and for people that have stressed urinary incontinence where little bits of urine leak out with an exertion. So laughing, coughing, sneezing, jumping, exercising, that type of thing. We, there's an increase in intra-abdominal pressure from sometimes even just standing up from a chair or pushing a heavy door open or lifting a child and a little bit of urine leaks out. That's stress urinary incontinence and surgery can be effective for that. So there are different types of, the most common would be a mid-urethral sling. Um, TOT, TBT are two very common names and types of surgery for stress urinary incontinence. Urge incontinence, so the people who have that sense of urgency that they're not gonna make it to the bathroom in time, that is not addressed by surgery. Um, that will be addressed mainly with diet and lifestyle and sometimes a little bit of exercise and bladder training. There are other things like um, there's a, a nerve, tibial nerve that can be, so PTNS is, the, is a type of therapy that addresses that nerve that could potentially help with urgency as well. And then there's also the people that have frequency who say, I always have to go to the bathroom. And there is a medical condition called overactive bladder that can be treated with pharmaceuticals. However, many people think they have overactive bladder because they go to the bathroom all the time when really it's behavioral or again, diet related. So surgery would also not help with people who feel like they have to go all the time. So it's mainly stress urinary incontinence that can be addressed surgically. 
anal incontinence, again, that's generally, uh, we'd want to look at what's the, what are the contributing factors to it. Some potentially, some surgical methods could potentially help, but again, diet, lifestyle, and pessaries could also be an option. Then we have prolapse, and prolapse is the bladder, the uterus, the rectum, in some cases, the top of the vagina. So if somebody, if this is the vagina and the cervix and the uterus are here, if somebody has had a hysterectomy, there are different ways to address the top of the vagina, but if it hasn't been resuspended optimally, sometimes the walls of the vagina can start to collapse in and on themselves. Um, so sometimes the surgery they had to fix a uterine prolapse actually has contributed to another type of prolapse. Then, so the uterus could be removed from heavy bleeding, fibroids, cancer, prolapse, and then the rectum, that's called a, either a rectocele or a posterior wall prolapse. So when it's bulging into the back wall, so this is what I was experiencing, that can be addressed via surgery as well. So bladder, uterine, rectum prolapse, rectal prolapse, where the rectum is bulging out the anus. That's a different type that can happen with male or female. And that also can be addressed uh, with surgery and then pain. So if the person is experiencing pelvic pain as a result of endometriosis or adenomyosis, potentially different, and there's different types of surgery could alleviate some of that pain. But if somebody had pain with sex or vestibulodynia, so pain at, right at the entrance to the vagina or pain in and around the vulva, surgery will not help with that. You know, if you do have to have surgery or if you happen to see a surgeon and they're like, let's do surgery, um, and they might rush to it, which I don't know if you see a lot of that happening. What Tell us about how you can optimize that experience. Um, and then what I want to get into is we can get into how do we, what do we do before we even get to that point to prevent having to get there? Um, so let's assume we start with surgery. You've got to get surgery. What do you do before that? I do see a lot of people after the fact, and, and sometimes it's many years who they'll say, I had surgery for this, and then I still had the problem or the problem came back, or now I have this problem. And then I had another surgery and so there's a lot of people that will chase the sim symptoms with surgery or sometimes pharmaceuticals and aren't getting to a root cause. So one thing I would say is if you are considering surgery, ideally have, I, I always say we need a healthcare village and, and not just one, one medical doctor. I think that's part of our team, but we have so many other amazing practitioners available to us. Some, yes, we have to pay privately for them. So it may not be accessible for everyone. I mean, those people may not exist in your community. However, there's many people that are online as well. But naturopaths, Chinese medicine, physiotherapy, chiropractor, massage therapy, pelvic floor physio, there's lots of other people who could have an influence to the challenge that you are currently dealing with. Surgery is an option that sits over here. However, surgery sometimes while it can fix the symptoms, it hasn't addressed what contributed to that problem developing in the first place. And if we haven't addressed that, the chance of that happening again means you might need another surgery, or maybe there's another new problem that you then are told you need surgery for, and you can kind of go down this rabbit hole. So my advice to people who 
are thinking about or who have consulted a surgeon, um, maybe have surgery booked is, do you know the root cause of your problem? And have you sought out opinion from other practitioners who could potentially address what it is that you're dealing with? And then if you, you know, if you haven't, and you still choose that, that's fine. However, I would still want some of these people factored into your preparation for surgery, factored into your recovery from surgery to increase the likelihood of success of that surgery and the longevity of it. So pelvic surgeries right now do have a fairly high recurrence rate. People are often told there's you know, a five-year window of longevity. So you may need to have another surgery done. I know many people who have had surgery 15, 20 years ago and never had to have it again. And then there are other people who their surgery fails within months, within a couple of years. So we can't 100% guarantee that you will fall in one of those buckets, but we can come in again and say, all right, you have stress urinary incontinence, you're considering surgery for that. Have you seen a pelvic floor physiotherapist? Have you addressed your diet? Have you looked at your posture? Have you looked at, you know, all these other things that could potentially be influencing that or contributing to it? Is it your muscles are not working optimally? Is it there's some scar tissue in there from potentially another surgery or childbirth? Um, Are you dealing with uh, high amounts of stress that is contributing to inflammation that's irritating your bladder and you're also eating foods that's irritating your bladder and contributing to it signaling you more and you don't have the control to overcome that. Like what are all these other things that we could consider first? Then if it's the right decision, you've also done work that will support the preparation for that surgery. And also many people then think, well, I've had surgery now. I don't need, I don't need that. I don't need Kegels anymore. I don't need pelvic floor physical therapy anymore. I would argue you need it more. So oftentimes people are told once you have the surgery, it's fine. You don't, you don't need to do any of this anymore because your problem will be gone. We still need that group of muscles to do all of those jobs that it has just because we've now addressed that one symptom. It doesn't mean that everything else is going to go back to hunky dory either, or that it will continue to be that way. So again, all the things that you pursue prior to surgery help you have a better outcome and also help you recover better. And it's something that becomes part of your life. It's a life, pelvic health is a lifestyle. It's not a just do Kegels while you're pregnant, just do Kegels after you've had surgery and then stop. It's something that we need to, and it's not just Kegels, I'll put that in there as well. There's a lot more than just Kegel exercises, but I think there's a huge missing link with regards to finding the root causes prior to people going into surgery. And the after effects. So a lot of people will have a hysterectomy for a prolapse and then now they're dealing with incontinence and they weren't told that that was a possibility and they weren't given tools to help mitigate that or to help overcome that. So then now they're like, okay, now I, now I need surgery for incontinence. Right. No, absolutely. So having just attended the uh, world premiere of Below the Belt about endometriosis, a question for you. Who should women take precaution on who's doing their surgery? Should they need to do surgery? Because like the data in the movie, and since I have endometriosis, I kind of knew this, but just hearing it again, it's like very alarming. 70% of OBGYNs aren't comfortable treating endometriosis. And 
I think that it was either that or it was um, most aren't trained to the 70% aren't uncomfortable doing the surgery if you have advanced stage. Nonetheless, the point is little understanding, little comfort, little knowledge. And yet a lot of women are going to OBGYNs who don't even necessarily know how to look for endometriosis because it takes so long to learn. Is there an equivalent to that when it comes to surgery for your pelvic floor? A thousand percent. I advise that people do their research and not just rely on whoever it is their family doctor refers them to. Who, who, their family doctor may refer them to a fantastic surgeon. That's And, and if so, then, fant- then great. Do your research, though, on that surgeon. It, there's lots of internet resources to be able to look at ratings, to look at uh, comments from other people. I always say, ask a pelvic floor physical therapist who they would recommend because they see the people. They Usually pelvic floor physical therapists are dealing with people who have issues, who have probably had surgery or who are having surgery. So they will have either seen the great work or the not so great work of somebody. And they usually have a list of people who they would feel comfortable referring their patients to um, who might need either additional or might need surgery for the first time. So I always say, ask your pelvic floor physio. So I did that. I already had in my mind a few people who I had met along the way who I kind of had on my list. And um, and my physiotherapist confirmed two of those. So I had a top three list. And and then I just process of elimination, I guess, but also wait time. So one of them had a bit less weight. And when I went in to see him, he I had seen him for something else as well. But he... He took the time. He never belittled me. He allowed me to ask all of my questions. He was very patient. I felt very comfortable with him. And I also went in. I did. I went in with a very long list of questions, <laughs> and and not very many people do. So usually, again, I, I am fortunate. The fact that I am I work in this world. I know what to ask. But that's not the case for everybody. So a lot of people go in and they don't know what they don't know. So they go in and say this is my problem. And they say, this is the surgery. And they go, okay. And they have the surgery and they come out. And if you ask them what surgery they had, they don't know. They don't know if it was mesh. They don't know if it was native tissue. They don't know if there were other procedures. I was speaking with a woman yesterday who had a hysterectomy and she was laying on the table and they uh, basically said, and, and uh, we're going to be taking out your ovaries and your fallopian tubes as well. And it was sort of just as things were happening. And she had back to the original conversation, never been told that and wasn't really in a position to, to now say, well, why and what? And, and so there's, and I'm not saying that's the norm, that I, that was a, a unique situation, but there are still people that when I ask what type of hysterectomy did you have, was it a complete, was it a partial, was it this, was it that laparoscopic? And they're like, ah, uh, not sure. All I know is that I went in for this and I, now I, I don't have that. So Again, though, that's not their fault. They just simply don't know what to ask. And we, the, the information isn't provided either, uh, which I think it should be. I think we should we deserve detailed explanations on what exactly you're going to do while you're inside my body. What are you removing? What are you, you going to do? How are you doing this? What's your success rate? How many times has this failed? What are the risks? You know, there's lots of questions to ask that people just don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Right. Do you have a list of questions on your website? Not on my website, but it's in, well, I have some in in a blog and I also have a whole program for surgery that I created after with this process because I just said there is, there is, 
not one resource aside from going to Dr. Google, which many people do, but that's a scary, confusing, conflicting space. And there is not one resource that is available to give people, you know, how to find a surgeon, how to, what questions to ask, how to prepare for, how to recover from. And then the most overlooked part is return to exercise. Just like postpartum, six-week green light, we have the same thing with post-op. And I wholeheartedly disagree with a a six-week, you're good to go back to normal advice. I, I disagree. I agree. And I'm glad you have um, have that list of, of questions and just offering all that support to women. So since you brought up Mesh, I just wanted to ask you. So I remember I interviewed Luce Brett. She was the first person I'd interviewed around any of these pelvic floor issues and um, or as a, as a patient. And she had spoken about the terrible experience. So what's the latest on where Mesh is at? So if Mesh is an option for women, what should they know? Yeah, so mesh is a scary word. It's a it's a four it literally is a four letter word, but it's also a four letter word now, right? And um and <laughs> <laughs> yes, so many people had uh, incredible challenges due to it was called the mesh kit and it was a specific type of propylene mesh that was used for prolapse surgeries that were c- contributing to basically there's like an erosion that that can happen and huge amounts of pain some could get removed, some couldn't. So people had lifelong debilitating issues from this mesh. So in 2019, I believe it was, the these mesh kits were removed from the market and, and were no longer used. That does not mean that mesh is no longer used, though that specific mesh kit was. Okay. And mesh is still used in incontinence like the the TOT and the TBT, so transobturator tape. So they'll it the and the tape the T is for tape and the tape is a mesh so there's if this is the urethra it's like a it's like a piece of mesh that sort of goes around and 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 supports it almost so mesh is still used and with incontinence therapies there was very little not going to say it never happened but a significantly less issue compared to the people who were using mesh for prolapse okay now again it doesn't mean that there is not mesh used now. It's a different, not that, again, that, not that mesh kit, but there is still indications where mesh may be advised. So that's another question to ask your physician is, could my repair happen with my own tissue, so a native tissue repair, or does it need to be mesh? What kind of mesh? What's the success rate with this? There are also almost like um, skin and and tissue taken from other animals. So pig is one that can sometimes be used. And there's now a new type that's still in kind of the test phase, but it's actually taken from cadavers. And there's a specific process that they go through to remove DNA. I I can't explain it yet fully, so that we would be able to use human tissue potentially down the road. So there are progressions that are happening but it is still a very important discussion to have with your surgeon and you know understanding could my repair could my surgery be done without mesh or is or is it an, a, an absolute and then what are the risks and benefits and what's your success rate and how many people have you how many surgeries have you done that have used this what's their outcome i've even asked um there are some 
doctors who have patients who will allow conversation. So you can ask somebody who has been through that. You have a patient who's gone through this exact surgery who has used this, but would be willing to speak with me. So that, those are all you could ask as well. I love that. That's such a great idea. It's something I certainly wouldn't have thought of. You know, as you were talking, like, for example, the the team of people that you might need, you know, one of the things that in the past year or so is really becoming apparent as I talk to these experts is, you know, how our healthcare system is set up in a complex way. And it often requires really, really good health insurance or a lot of money. And so for those who can't afford it. Like one thing I'm immediately thinking of is your book. So I definitely want you to talk about that. But outside of leveraging your book, which was such a great summary of key things to know and options and things that you need to do before you try to do something at home, how do, how would people look at that as, look, I don't have a ton of funds, but I have this this issue and I want to either prevent it or make it get better. What are the foundations there? Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. The medical system, and it's happening here as well. There are family physicians more so who are leaving their practices in droves because they've recognized through the pandemic that our healthcare system is really not healthcare; it's sick care. And many of them. So my family doctor was one of them. She said, "This is all backwards," and I'm moving into. She was going into energy medicine. Uh, I don't know exactly what she's up to right now, but she's closed her practice. And, and I know many others, it's been like a common thread through Facebook groups and what have you of people no longer having family physicians. So it's wow. sad, um, but, it, but it's an interesting time though, because it's, it is bringing to light how healthcare can be delivered differently. And over the past couple of years, we for so long was, you can never do that online. You could never do this. It has, you have to be in person. And we realized pretty quickly everybody transitioned and healthcare can be delivered in so many different ways with incredible benefit. And that ultimately I think can help us reduce costs because if we don't have these massive clinics that, that the doctors are needing to pay overhead on, there will need to be some of that for in-person, but ultimately I think it will be a, a good thing, but it'll take many, many, many years. It's going to be an, an evolution, so to speak. The other good thing that we have though, and we all became very familiar with over uh, not that we weren't familiar before, but we have the internet and we have YouTube and we have social media channels and you don't, you don't have to be on all of them, but we, we, I guess YouTube would be the number one thing that I would go to. It, it has become a search engine for many people and almost people like my kids watch it. They don't watch TV, they watch YouTube and they have favorite channels that they watch. Like we had favorite channels on TV and there is an incredible information shared on YouTube channels for free that can at least help point you in the right direction. Not to say that you would navigate, navigate the whole thing without any cost, but it could provide you with some introduction to a practitioner you may have never thought about who could help you address your stress urinary incontinence or an exercise that you had been doing differently that you've now switched that is making a difference. And you can learn that for free. So um, books, we've, there's, there are books on the subject. There are podcasts. There are many pelvic health podcasts, your podcasts, like there, there's information available. And if people can dedicate some time to doing some research, oftentimes if they just find one thing, so if they find your podcast, how many amazing practitioners have you, you've mentioned three or four of them already and point down to, to 
Dr. Jill Krapf down to, you know, whoever. And, and now they've been introduced to another person who they didn't know was in the neck of their woods or yep. they've seen her and they think I need to find somebody like her in my city. So I feel it, it is overwhelming and, and there is a, there is a disconnect. There is a accessibility factor. However, we also have an enormous amount of free information that can help us at least start our journey. You know, one thing though, the challenge with all this free information is the misinformation. Like I remember, I don't go on TikTok that much, but I happened to be on TikTok and the thing that popped up was this woman, she was about to, it was actually very cool. She was she was trying on all these outfits and she was drinking this green juice and she writes on there, oh yeah, there's this influencer who has bloating just like me and she's drinking this green juice, so I'm going to drink it. And I'm like, but why are you bloated? Like, let's start there. And is this green juice going to help you? And so, you know, I, I don't know if you have like a, a key tip on how, like, for example, I vet, like I have a lot of people that reach out and honestly, 70% of the people who reach out to me, I say no. Um, I do research, I read reviews, I look at what they're going to say, and I'm very careful on who is on this podcast. What is there anything that you would want to to share? Because I mean, I'm sure you have lots of people that come to you and they talk about the different things they heard. So is there a theme of, hey, guys, if you see this, don't do it? Yeah. And, and that's another, it is a complication in a sense. It I would say that there's, it's just like anything, there's, there's a lot of great about it. And there's a lot of, you got to be skeptical about as well. So the world of influencers. Some people consider me an influencer and, you know, they'll be paid to represent a, a product. Some people have, so myself and many people that I know will only kind of like what you do. If I firmly believe in a product and I've used it myself and I think that it will provide benefit and I've done my research on it, I will be an influencer for that product, but I won't be an influencer for everything. However, there are many people who make their living by influencing people with different products. So for instance, green juices. Now there could, that green juice could help somebody. It could. And there are, you know, it, it but there, you have to do a little bit of kind of looking into what, what is it? Like, how is it helping? What are the ingredients? You want to do a little bit of your own due diligence, but it could potentially help you. However, there's not as many people talking about root causes. Functional medicine practitioners, naturopathic doctors are typically the ones who are getting you to think about root, root causes. Pelvic health people, I, I think, are also in, in that bucket. I, I am like you, I, and I have started a TikTok account. I, rel- <laughs> I, I resisted for years because I really don't, I'm not, I just find social media just, um, I, I, it's not my favorite thing in the world. However, yeah. It has also played a very positive role in getting awareness out to many people. So in the, in the time that I have started back in the day, Twitter. So when I first started my business, Twitter was the only, we had Facebook, but it was still very much just a personal platform. And Twitter was kind of this first way for you to reach out and find other businesses and, and interact. And then obviously we've come a long way since just Twitter. However, we have influencers now, we have this whole world and I don't love it. But it has increased awareness and there yes, are a lot more has. people who have received information or at least been set down the path to figure something out and it still happens i've been sharing this stuff on social media for years and years and years and years and i just feel like i'm constantly repeating myself but every day it's like oh my gosh i i never knew this thank you so much for sharing this information 
It's funny. I feel the same t- same thing sometimes. And some of the people that I work with, I'm like, can you please tell me what's interesting to you? Because I've kind of forgotten because I, I do this all the time. <laughs> so it has been so fun getting to know you. And your book is amazing. I'll put a link in my show notes, um, Your Pelvic Floor. It's it's fantastic. Very, very thorough. Um, so I definitely want people to check it out. Um, I think it's great for, honestly, healthcare practitioners and women. And it can also be like a reference guide of like, because you're going to change throughout your life. And so there may be different things you need. So I think it would also act as a great reference for, for people to keep. So highly encourage getting the book. So what is the one thing that listeners should really take away from this conversation when it comes to pelvic health and surgery? If you were to give that one takeaway, what should that be? Don't rush into it and think that it's your only option. And, um, and then the other thing would be that the, the point I made about pelvic floor physical therapy and exercise and kind of that, that lifestyle piece, it is an essential component and not something that you can say goodbye to because you've had surgery. It's more important if you have surgery. I love it. That's awesome. Very simple, straightforward. And, and I would agree. It's a really good summary. Thank you so much for your dedication. Um, truly appreciate it. And I'm glad even with social media not being your favorite, you're doing it anyways and repeating yourself because we do need everyone to hear these important messages and you do great work. It's very engaging and helpful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share and it was lovely to get to know you better too. Thank you. <laughs>